0: a delight it is to see everyone here this evening and it is my great pleasure to, uh, to kick off the proceedings tonight by introducing our special guest, Annick Cojon. Annick is one of the most eminent and best known journalists working in France today and a cultural commentator as well. She is a special correspondent for the newspaper Le Monde um, for which she writes on a range of topics, political issues, cultural issues and so on. She is also um, a a winner of the Prix Albert Londres, um, which is a prize named in honor of one of the founders of investigative journalism in France. And people here often compare it to winning a Pulitzer Prize, (laughs) it's a very prestigious award. Anique is the author of many books, and tonight in our conversation, we're going to touch on just two of those. Um, the first um, that we'll touch on is her crucially important but quite difficult to talk about um, work on the experiences of women in Libya called Gaddafi's Harem, the shocking true story of Gaddafi's secret sex slaves. Um, and the other is Anik's most recent book, Je ne serai pas arrivé là si, which we are translating as I wouldn't be where I am today if dot 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 Um, and this is a series of interviews with 27 really important and inspiring women and it's a very invigorating read um, as well. They're performers and artists and human rights activists and politicians and women from all walks of life. So who better to join us tonight um, to talk about our topic for this evening, the cause of women. Um, What a great honour and a privilege it is to welcome you to both Brisbane and the University of Queensland, Annika Jean. Thank you. Okay, so Annick I am going to start with not one of the books that I have just mentioned, um, but a smaller book of yours, because I can't resist, amongst many of um, Anik's many titles of her book, there is one that, that caught my eye, um, which is the book L'échappée Australienne, which I think we could translate <laughs> as an Australian getaway, I guess. Um, and so now that we're in Australia, I realise I'm not welcoming you to the country for the first time. You know your way around have here. You've written a a book on the place. So, do you tell us a little bit about how it is that you came to be in Australia on a previous visit and to be inspired to write a book about your experience?
1: Oh, I must be very modest on this uh, little book, you know it was made for a French audience and, <laughs> and I think sometimes if the Australian people were reading it, they wouldn't discover very many things, and they would think that maybe I'm a kind of naive but but it was such a pleasure to to be, um, to be able to come to uh, Australia. In uh, two, year two thousand, because there, there was the Olympic Games, and uh, it was a huge moment, I guess, for the Australian people. But for us, of course, coming from all over the world, it was interesting. And I was assigned by my, my newspaper to write about Australia—anything but the Olympic Games. You know, no sport at all. Just do what you want to present and to introduce Australia to to our readers. Oh, so I was so so happy, so lucky. I felt so privileged, and I took the Indian Pacific. And I went to Broken Hill and Kalgoorlie and, uh, and Perth and Broome and uh, uh, Darwin, Early Spring, etc. So me, just meeting people and trying to get the, uh, the, the 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 spirit of this country. But I must say that I had been in Australia before when I was a uh, Twenty-two after my studies, I made a tour around the world, and I wanted—I uh, found uh, At that time, there used to be some tickets, cheap tickets, and uh, I found one that permitted me to, to go to go to Australia. I went to Bucharest, Singapore, Jakarta, and Sydney. I hit height um, a lot in Australia, I must say, uh, and then tour around the world uh, again. But and my dream. And I will make it short, but I must say since I was 12 I was dreaming of Australia and I was living in a small village in the west part of France in Brittany and I was 12 and I don't know why I had a, a poster of a Sydney Opera in my in my bedroom also a poster of Shane Gould and some of you <laughs> must know Shane Gould but she was my hero. I was a bit younger than her <laughs> but not a lot and I my no. How did you do that? This, just, this is you? I can't believe that. Shen I had this photo in, in my textbook when I was 12, and I haven't seen that photo <laughs> since that time. Oh my god, that is a shock. <laughs> yes, she had this little kangaroo, and I fell in love with her. Yeah, really. And she was so important. And yeah, you know, so many years afterwards, when I told my brothers that I was going to Australia, and he said, "You're going to be Shen because you know my other brother was eight, the other one was ten, and they always fed up with Shen at home. <laughs> but I was just." fascinated so I wanted to learn English to be a good student to just to be <laughs> able to communicate one day wish and good which I did when uh, in 2000 I had my little the little letter she she wrote to me when I was 12 from Australia because I had I had written to her blah, 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 <laughs> make it joke but but still and when I came to, to to Sydney, I called her, and we it, it was difficult to meet her, but finally we had lunch together and I had my little the little uh, photo she had signed to me and her little letter sent to me. <laughs> More than, oh well, 30 years before. So I have a really good idea. And how delightful that we could reunite
0: you with this photo. I can't believe that. This is such a surprise, really. (laughs) (laughs) We'll (laughs) get Jo to email it to you after, so you can keep it as a souvenir. (laughs) Aninka, I want to move now to your most recent book of interviews, Je ne serais pas in là. And in this book, to explain to everyone the title of the book, I wouldn't be where I am today if Dot 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 is the way that you begin um, yes. all of your interviews with women, and then that opens up for whatever it is that they would like to um, reflect on. So I'd love to touch on a couple of examples of the women that you, in your reflections, and then the women that you um, interviewed. But I want to start with the question itself because it's such a rich question to begin interviews with. And you note in your own preface to the book that you recognise that it's a vertiginous question to to begin with, and you say that you you're asking your interviewees to reflect on nothing less than what has made and unmade them, what things have marked and shaped them and that probably the answer to that question is one that would change from day to day, which is just as well because you have provided an irresistible temptation for everyone who interviews you subsequent to the book <laughs> to begin by turning the tables and asking you, posing you the question that you begin at the start of your own interviews. So so by way of introduction to our audience tonight, <laughs> Anik, you would not be where you were today if <laughs> if,
1: if I hadn't had this, uh, this mother, which I liked so much, which was uh, like the sun, um, she was funny, she was very kind, uh, very tender, um, full of life, uh, full of fantasy. And I've been very, very lucky. And she was my best friend for so many years. Um, uh, she, she made me feel free. Mm-hmm. and a citizen of the world it's not a formula uh, from the beginning I mean I was in this little village and uh, I could dream of anything and it was simple she, she didn't she never said oh, that's impossible that you won't be able to etc everything was looking simple and possible as far as you were you had to be nice you mm-hmm. had to be polite you had to have big dreams she encouraged me mm-hmm. to have all the dreams I wanted to and um, I remember something, you know, very simple, uh, but it happened that I thought of that writing this book and the preface of this book, because one day I, I was at the table of the kitchen at home. I had a desk in my room, bedroom, but I always wanted to be in the kitchen, so. And uh, and she was preparing the dinner. like every, like every night. And uh, I was saying, oh, mom, I just read something about the United States. This is unfair. This is, I think it was about racism, because with Shane Gould, uh, Martin Luther King was my hero, too, when I was 12. And I was reading things. This is unfair. This is unbelievable. What's it do to black people, etc. cetera. And, oh, you know, this is unbelievable. We are in. What were was that? What year was uh, Nineteen seventy, maybe something like that. Oh, and uh, I just remember seeing a back, a silhouette. You know, she was just making the soup or something. I just the back there, and she said, "Well, just try, uh, just write to the president." <laughs> <laughs> to the president? Did did, did I hear well? <laughs> to the president, ma'am. She said yes to the President of the United States. This was just unbelievable, and she didn't comment. But you, it's unbelievable what it can make to you and how it provokes you in a way. Yes, this was my responsibility. I disagree. So right, So I have to 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 study better my English, of course, at school to write to the <laughs> president of the United <laughs> States. That was not obvious, and so and so I did, you know. But everything was. She, she didn't have big messages to mm-hmm. me. But just, you know, be natural, that's
0: it concerns you. Yeah, yes. That's so interesting, Anique, because all of the women, you know, in the, in that beautiful story about your mum telling you, if you don't approve of racism, you just write to the president of the mm-hmm. United States and tell him what's wrong with it. In the and that, of course, you know, you were like, can I do that, mum? Um, because that sort of breaks the expectations of the yeah. kind of and it's the thing that's so striking about you know the interviews that you have with these women. They're all different women. They're in different professions. They're from different walks of life. Um, there's Australian women in there. American women, women of color, Parisian women, and so on. But all of them share in common yeah. that they have in some way had to break people's expectations about what it is that they will sure. do. They're women who have had to forge their own path. Is one of the things that comes out you know, from a lot of the, sure. um, the conversations. So you get this sort of enormous range of feminisms. It's not one feminism in the, the book. But at the same time, they share this, this willingness to break people's expectations of what it is that they yes, can do.
1: They, they didn't know at the beginning, mm-hmm. as I didn't know there was something special when I was twenty. Mm-hmm. Also, of course, I was a student. I was mm-hmm. raised like my brothers, and so I was thinking things would be mm-hmm. kind of easy, mm-hmm. and you don't expect the obstacles, etc. And I was not so much aware also of feminism or yeah. or of the differences, the inequalities between men and women. Mm-hmm. Also, I could have seen some things. I was raised like my brothers uh, might have made more dish uh, wish, uh, washing <laughs> <laughs> the washing dishes washing uh, probably, and I didn't like that, but uh, <laughs> of course not. But uh, and I complained. Mm-hmm. but I could see the difference between my parents and, and my mom wasn't working outside the house. My father was not expecting her to do. He wouldn't have liked her to do. Was not so easy in the village, but, but still, and he was giving her money for the month, mm. you know, for the whole family. Mm. And at the end of the month, sometimes she didn't have much or she had nothing. And it was tough for her to, mm. to ask. And mm. it didn't go to her mm. asking, Do you have enough or something like that? Not at all. And she, he, he hated when she had to ask. You know, Mm. there's still two more days that I can't cope. Mm. And he resisted, you know. Mm. And even when she wanted to buy, uh, she was very coquette and uh, a new dress or something, she had to ask. And so she, it was not big lessons that Mm. she, uh, loud lessons that she gave me, but I could observe that. I thought that was very unfair. Mm. She was so bright, so Mm. fast, so, and so gentle, and that was unfair. And also, she always told me, you have to be independent, Anik. Work mm-hmm. at school. You mm-hmm. need a job, and you need to be not to depend mm-hmm. on anyone later, on a husband or mm-hmm. you know on a man. But, mm-hmm. but you have to be independent, and that something. There's a lot of women I interview who mm-hmm. had this kind of lesson, vocal or not vocal, but told by their mother. Work and be independent. Yeah, and
0: if that's so true, and if I can move to one of those um, stories now, because as you were saying, well, when you were growing up, you know, you had brothers, you felt like you were very equal, but there would be these ways in which you would do more washing up or whatever. There would there would be ways that you could Mm. perceive that there was Mm. a difference. Mm. That story, almost word for word, is one that Brigitte Bardot tells in her interview (laughs) with you. I think it's the same example, pretty much. Um, And so maybe we can start with her, because she is such an interesting example of a woman who comes to, very well known here as well, comes to renown as this kind of sex symbol figure and then has had this massive change in her life that no one could have predicted, where now she is best known for being an animal rights activist. Exactly. So tell us a little bit about your interview
1: with her. Yes, it's, it's, it's very interesting. A lot of people were very surprised. Some were shocked. Some were disappointed that I interviewed also Brigitte Bardot. Mm-hmm. She's on the right. Both of the people, I think, I don't know, finally. But, but, but certainly there are not a lot of people from the extreme right. Uh, that, uh, I, I wouldn't give them you know, the word. But she's interesting. She's 84. Maybe 85 now. She's living by herself in a in a farm in Saint Tropez. She doesn't meet any journalists anymore. She doesn't want to be filmed, etc. And she writes a lot. She writes to Macron, our president. She writes to the ministers. She she complains about the animal rights. And she works every day. And it was surprising even coming to see her you know i had to cross to find my my way to her to a farm and i i made lots of you know head um chickens the the horse and donkeys and dogs and cats and she's surrounded by lots of animals but especially to me this symbol was very interesting because you know she said well i wouldn't be where i am now if i hadn't be suddenly conscious Mm. of the suffering of the animals and decided to change completely my life when I was 34. Everybody was shocked, everybody thought it was just you know, a caprice, a whim, a, yeah, a whim, whim. and uh, it was not. It was so deep in me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she said, I hated cinema. I hated the movie industry. I hated the other actors. They were not interesting. Mm-hmm. And they, the movie makers and they had to to kick my bottom, You know, to to oblige me to go to a cocktail or to the premiere of a movie, etc. I didn't mm-hmm. like that. That was fake. And I wanted to. Shoes and I wanted uh, something natural, and th- that was not—it was not my fate. So I had to change. And then she engaged herself totally in the crusade for the animals. And now, being 84, and so that I respect very much. I respect engagement. I respect when people go through and until the, the, mm. the realisation of the dream but, but she does and she fights very much for that and uh, you, you know she sometimes she has some sentences and some uh, reflection that i don't like about the world but having two or three hours with mm. someone i try to find the la face lumineuse what do you say the The most beautiful (laughs) side the most beautiful side of the people yeah I think this is my responsibility I have the chance to make an interview with Brigitte Bardot I want to find what is good in her what is interesting in her that's Mm. the most important I think mm. she has to share and of course there might be some complaint about she made some racist remarks but that has to do also with the care she has for the mm. animals and she shocked of course when once some religion in one religion they have to be you know the, mm. the, the goats uh, they La, La gorge doit tranchée, you know, for Haid, the, yes. the, the festival of Haid once a year. Uh, yeah, and she's getting mad at that. So it mm. has been sometimes interpreted as a very racist. I don't think she's really, I don't think so. But, you know, she's very politically uh, incorrect when mm. she talks. But talking about her life, talking about her engagement, talking about freedom of uh, being a woman, and feeling independent, and having to fight, and being uh, considered as a a stupid woman, because Mm -hmm. she was very pretty, she was Mm -hmm. a sex symbol, Mm etc. She shows that, no, she has character, Mm -hmm. and she's faithful to some ideas. Mm -hmm. And every day, she's receiving letters from all over the world. and. Paying attention to what is said at the United Nations in New York about these species in, in, uh, in Africa. She has a refuge in Bhutan. She has another refuge in Hungary. And she's protecting a zoo, this this place, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things. I respect that. Yeah. They think this is interesting, and that's a very unusual life, probably. But there's something, it's not some people said, "How can you put Brigitte Bardot and Francoise Héritier, which is an <laughs> ethnologist, you know, very interesting, very intellectual? How dare you to put Brigitte Bardot f- facing um, Virginie pont?" They are so different." Yes, but they are women, and they share a lot. Mm. Finally, and I think mm. reading that book, you understand that mm. there's. I believe in sisterhood mm. and I believe in the. all these women had to face a world whose rules mm. were made by and for men. It's yeah, fa- I mean, It's often sort of said, especially lot.
0: amongst feminists, that difficult women, women who are identified as being difficult, are women facing difficulties. So, sure. I think that a lot of the women that, that you talk, yeah. I mean, it would be a false impression of the range of women's experiences to homogenize the, the range of women sure. you're talking about. So, I appreciated the range that you had in there. I mean, another you mentioned, you know, um, Rajid's sort of. Um, you know, that, that she was this sort of you know, sex symbol figure. Another of your um, interview subjects is, of course, most well known for being one of the it girls of the 1960s, which is Marianne Faithfull, of course. And she's quite um, reluctant to, to be identified that way these days, isn't she? <laughs>
1: Oh, well, she's tough. <laughs> she's living in Paris. She doesn't want to be considered as English. She always said, well, she's a, another. She has some ancestors in, uh, in the Balkans and uh, Gaelic also. And uh, and, uh, and part of her is Jewish also. So mm. she doesn't like British anymore, especially with the Brexit, <laughs> which I understand in a way. Brexit is just, oh, it's still a disaster now. But, but mine faithful, yes, of course, Uh, she always (laughs) received her some questions about the Rolling Stones, and, and she was in love with Mick Jagger for for four years, and, he, and she can't believe that there's always question about Mick Jagger. she said, "It's only four years in my life, you know. Maybe he broke her heart, but <laughs> but it's a fact that four years." And and of course, she always in all the biographies she's considered as a muse of the Jagger of Mick Jagger, or the muse of the Stones. And she says, "This is the worst thing which could be, be told about." me the muse the muse i was writing songs i'm a musician i think i have some talent you know she's she thinks she's she's something really she's not (laughs) modest at all but why would she be you know and uh, and she said this is so unfair that people still consider me as a muse of of uh, the, uh, the stones she did lots of things and also she she talks about uh being sober that was a huge battle in her life, mm-hmm. because with the stone, she discovered heroin and mm-hmm. and uh, tough drugs, and that was the, the biggest battle in her life was to mm-hmm. become sober. She's so proud of having succeeded that, and and she goes on and she makes some concerts in Paris. And she has changed, of course. She she had a, a stick, you know, to, mm-hmm. to rely on, etc. On concert, still a, a strong mm-hmm. personality, and uh, and this. You know that was not easy to, mm. to interview her mm. because she reacts and you feel someone who who is full of I mean mm. still full of anger in a way that's not so or serenity <laughs> not at all but uh, but there was on her desk a, a frame with a letter a father had written to her saying, you know I just received your book uh, my daughter and I'm so proud of you mm. And I said, well, what is that? And I, I began reading loudly. And she said, oh, stop, stop, I'm going to cry. And that was strange. And and she had some tears, you know, okay. just thinking of her father. And she had a tough relationship with her, both her parents. And I said, what about, do you have any regret? And she said, uh, I haven't been nice enough with my mom. Mm-hmm. And so that's funny, and, and I'm always not surprised i know now how important it is but to see these people or to meet these people who are 40 50 60 mm-hmm. 70 even 80 mm-hmm. who still talk about their parents and the relationship it, it seems that you know since the, the the
0: first 15 years mm-hmm. of your life so many Yeah things it's really happen. interesting that you yeah. mentioned how much she talks about her sobriety as well because it's a really interesting common thread in your book how many women sometimes because of circumstances like Marian and Faithful, but sometimes in the response to sort of trauma or the difficulties of their own lifestyles have had various sort of substance issues and then become mm. sober. It's a really something I wasn't expecting um, when mm. I read the book. Mm. But, Anika, I want to just move on to one final example by way of segue um, here, and that is a story that I wasn't familiar with that I learned from reading the interview um, in your book, and that is a story of Shirin Ebadi, ah. um, who, for those of you who don't know, um, is an Iranian lawyer and human rights activist who um, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003. Of course, women are underrepresented in winning uh, these yes. awards. It's unusual to win these kinds of awards, so you would think it would be a good thing, um, but you describe her winning that award in the preface to the, the interview itself as a poisoned gift for her. Tell us a little bit about what happens to her after she wins the yeah, Nobel Peace that Prize. Was
1: That was just terrible. Of course, it was a big honor, and uh, she was very happy. She was uh, in, in, she was in Paris when that the news uh, uh, arrived, and I, and I was there. So I made a short interview first with her, and then I came back to to meet with her uh, two months later in uh, in Tehran, and uh, and she was. Also tough because reluctant to talk because, mm. and I was thinking, oh wow, she has a mm. not reasonable price. She should be vocal now. She's you know she's protected, and she's not. She was not, and she's been attacked and she's been harassed and she's been prevented from from traveling. And then uh, uh, office uh, she. she she couldn't be a judge, but then she was a lawyer. She was a lawyer for the for the, for the, for the women and children. Mm-hmm. There's so many things, to, mm-hmm. so many reasons to defend the women in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and first, uh, the fact that a, a woman is only uh, is worth only half a man, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So there are so many. <laughs> so many consequences of that and then uh, she's been prevented to do her job and then the people working with, uh, with her have been attacked and then there were some threats um, uh, towards uh, family and her um, uh, daughters and then uh, uh, well lots of things happened and once she was in a uh, she was on a trip uh, um, outside the country, for once she she could leave, and during that time, they trapped her husband, mm-hmm. and um, they they attracted him with prostitutes, or something like that, and uh, and so he was blackmailed, and, and she discovered him. One day on the screen, and he was just criticizing her and telling awful things about her, her husband, and she still loved, etc. So, just disaster. And then, of course, she divorced and she lost everything. She lost her family, and she's now living in exile in London, with her daughter. And in fact, she's become. Her daughter is becoming a lawyer, and she said my Daughter is going to be tougher than me, mm. and that's a rebellion in a way. But but her life has just been ruined mm. by this Peace Nobel Prize. Or we shouldn't say it's a Peace Nobel Prize by the Iranian Ayatollahs, mm. yes, for sure. Fact, but it's a fact, fact that um, having to endorse this uh, this award and trying to be um, to handle it and uh, être à la hauteur, être um, yes to handle it yeah, <laughs> yeah, to be yeah. to cope with it uh, mint a lot. And, and it's so and you know, given that destroyed. some of the
0: stories that you tell in the um, in your book of interviews are stories like that, one of the things that I most appreciated about those was the fact that you gave women the voice to tell their own stories. Their interviews they're told in the first person. So as a journalist of course you could tell those stories in the third person, but you allow the women to speak directly um, for themselves. And that's it them that yeah. way, I think. Yes, yeah,
1: so so to the hear the voice them. and to have the feeling. Of having just a conversation
0: with them. Yeah, it, it gives you a real sense of intimacy that you're you're hearing these stories firsthand, and you continue that um, in your more recent book, which is available uh, more recent for us, um, which is available in English as well. Which yes. is your book on um, Gaddafi's harem um, as well, and that's a very powerful story. Again, made more powerful because we get to hear that story. Um, in the person's own, in Soraya's own um, in words. It's a very strong story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how it is you came to write that book? Well, yes, that,
1: was a, that came as a surprise for me also because I was not at all expecting to go to Libya first mm-hmm. and uh, to, to write about uh, rape as a weapon of war. Rape as a weapon of power in that case of Gaddafi mm-hmm. first, and then as a weapon of war. You know, there was in two thousand and eleven this wind of the revolution and in, in the um, Maghreb countries, countries from the Maghreb, and uh, so. And I, I, I could watch on TV every. And read in my newspaper what was happening, and it was so fascinating. Suddenly, the people were in the street, in the squares, mm-hmm. and yelling and and the, the, denouncing the dictators. And that was the case in Morocco, in Tunisia, especially in in uh, square Tahrir, in uh, in Cairo, and uh, and in Syria and in Libya. And I couldn't believe that, and I was so fascinating. Every day, every night, to read that, and and about Libya, I was not surprised so much about the Tunisia. The women have always been strong in uh, in Tunisia, so they were in the streets and and talking a lot. But there was nothing about women in mm. Libya. Nothing mm. at all was said. And on the photo on the video, I couldn't see them. And I was wondering, what do they do? Do they react? Are they in the streets? Do they are they uh, against the dictator or? might they support Support him mm-hmm. because you know, his propaganda, he was always surrounded by his women, his bodyguards, and uh, women bodyguards mm-hmm. and female bodyguards. And as uh, uh, saying, you know, um, in his green book, which was taught at school and all commentated uh, everywhere, and there were lots of uh, also conferences about how feminist he was. Mm-hmm. He gave freedom to all the women, etc. The best proof wa- was that he was surrounded by female bodyguards so i was i had a strange feeling about that and i wanted to go there and i asked the desk editor to go and uh, there were some some of our journalists also in in libya or in different parts of maghreb at that time and you know i was not from the foreign desk so they always a reluctant to to let me sometimes do some things, but but it was a, a question about women. So he said, "Okay, it's a, it, it, you're just going to investigate about what women do during the revolution." I said, "Yes, this is my issue." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Okay, oh no, no, you, you can go. You know, just a woman's issue. So, poof, uh, I was totally free to go and encourage. Yes, talk about women. Oh, this, you know, this is a small, tiny, tiny subject, etc. And I went there, and um, and very quickly I uh, happened to discover that they had done a lot during the revolution. They were not on the photos, but still, they were doing a lot. They, were, they helped a lot, NATO, and etc. Well, did a lot. And even a rebel told me, in fact, they were our secret weapon during the revolution. But I had also heard that there were some rape. Rapes happened a lot during the revolution. And I talked to some people and talked to one woman who was um, she had been a rebel herself and she, she told me nobody will talk to you about that. But I promise you there were thousands of rapes. Mm. And I began to investigate and uh, secret Silence. Nobody would talk about that. And when I think of what I did, or the type of question I asked, I was stupid and I was so naive. I said, well, when people told me I've been put in jail and I've been tortured, and I said, were you raped? oh what a stupid question to ask of course i'm not going to say yes Mm. nobody would never say i've been raped of course this is a total taboo and i was going after a couple of days i was considering the idea of maybe writing a page in my newspaper but that was a failure saying the impossible inquiry you know because i knew it existed some people were saying well in the other..." Town or in the other uh, city next to our, there were lots of right but were, don't talk about my city, etc. This was I couldn't quote the place, I couldn't quote the country, I couldn't quote the, the, the people, etc. I couldn't quote anybody, so it was impossible to write. And somebody one day, I was just going to come back to France. I had written lots of articles because it, it happened that the day after I arrived, Carafi was found and killed, so I had to write every night, you know, for the month beside my story about women. And uh, uh, I met uh, a young girl. She was coming from Tunisia. Her name was Soraya. She was 22, uh, very beautiful, and lost, totally lost. And uh, saying, you know, I see all the people demonstrate in the streets. There's a lot of Kalashnikov, Alakbar, Alakbar, everywhere. And people, every night, there were meetings and uh, music, etc. because that was the end of dictatorship, they thought. And, uh, but she couldn't join these people. And I said, why? And she said, uh, my story is too awful and I can't say that to anybody. So, you know, I was interested, <laughs> of course. And she, I say, you know, I'm very much interested in women and their stories, so you can talk to me. And I know, for instance, there's been lots of rapes, but nobody would talk to me about that. And she said, well, I've been raped. Well, that was the first time I could I- hear this type of sentence, and then she said, "I was raped by Gaddafi by Gaddafi himself. I just i you know, I was investigating about rapes during the revolution during the war, as weapon of war and by militias and by soldiers and organized, I knew it was organized, planned, et etc, but by Gaddafi, and she said, "Well." You know and she told me a story and the story was the one of a little girl being at school being 15 she just had turned 15 when that arrived the the, uh, the director of uh, high school when they said you know girls the tomorrow we have the great honor of welcoming having the visit of papa Papa Muammar Daffy the the guide, the guide of the revolution. And this is a big honor. And so I want you to be well dressed and to be well prepared and to be just perfect for the ceremony. And so be on time, etc. And she was excited. You know, she, she, her parents didn't like the guide, but it, it was impossible to say that type of thing because there are microphones and the, yeah, the neighbors. You, you couldn't say the truth, of course. And she went the other day, very excited and very. Early in the morning, the teacher said, "So Raya, please, can you come?" And she discovered she had been chosen to give, to offer the bouquet to the dictator. Oh, she was very happy, very honored. Oh, oh my God, she was, she was uh, trembling and uh, how to do it, etc. What should I do? Should I say something, etc. Well, she was prepared, and she was given the bouquet. And suddenly, Kennedy arrived, a white uniform, his sunglasses surrounded by his female bodyguards. And immediately she was in front of him and she gave him the bouquet, just trembling. And, uh, and, and she kissed his hand, not knowing what to do. And he pressed her hand in a very bizarre way. She didn't like, she didn't feel comfortable. But, and he put his first hand on her shoulders and the other one on her head. And she didn't know at that time. But she would discover very quickly that that was a signal to say, that one, that one, I want her. She's going to be mine. She was a signal to the bodyguards. And the second day, the day after, uh, a car coming from Qaddafi's uh, uh, fortress came uh, with flags, etc. And there were three women, two with uniform, uh, coming to the hair salon of her mother and asking, you know, your Soraya has been just wonderful yesterday giving the bouquet. And we would like her to give another bouquet today. That was just stupid. This did not make any sense. And her mother was very suspicious of the bouquet to gain. And uh, Soraya was saying, mommy, mommy, that's a big honor. She didn't realize, of course. And you know, in Qaddafi's Libya um, saying no to people coming from um, and the behaviour of, of the guide was not an option. So she was put in the car and the car drove and drove and drove in the desert, very far away from the city. And she was introduced in a um, sort of caravan. There were camels, there were lots of people, lots of women. And the Carafi was in this um, big trail? No, no, a camping car and a trailer. And he was on a massage siege, and I just said, uh, "Prepare her." And I'm not going to the de- going to say the details, etc. But she was stripped, shaved, uh, prepared, g- given uh, some sexy um, um, clothes, and she, she just was so ashamed, thinking, "Oh, if my mom could see me, what am I doing here?" And pushed in this room tried to rape rape her. She resisted. She was so shocked. She thought it was a mistake. She she was so confused. And uh, so Kedefi was crazy at her and asked another woman, teach her. And well, the worst happened two or three days afterwards. She was sent, um, put in a car with lots of woman bodyguard, you know, in uniforms, and she went to his fortress, and then she was beaten, raped, given cocaine, uh, alcohol, and all that kind of things. Well, that lasted for five years, in fact, and she was put in her in his basement with lots of other girls. She was a favorite for a while, and then not so much, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was just unbelievable, and she discovered that he was doing that, and he's been doing that for years. Probably for forty-two years mm. of his regime, from the beginning, and then afterwards, it's a fact that I discovered and, and I met some other women. When I met Saraya, she was twenty-two, but I met some women who were sixty. Mm. So you know, a huge, um, um, lots of generation had suffered the same things, and uh, so she she told me that story. I wrote. Uh, this story uh, in uh, in Le Monde. I left. Uh, I left Libya. I went back to my newspaper. Wrote this story, which has been, well, which has been circulating a lot and been translated. And, and then um, the woman I had met before, who told me about the, the rape, also said, "You have to write a book about that." You know, Well, some publisher asked, but. Uh, that was a kind of duty. I didn't have choice. I was not dreaming of writing about that, not at all. I was not a specialist of Libya. I'd never been in Libya before. So that doesn't make me a specialist. But I had this story, and I could check things. And I could go in different places where she, that she indicated to me, and I could check all the, all the details, not all the details, of course, because the, the dictator was killed. A lot of people had at least left Libya, uh, um, his family, mm-hmm. etc., and, and some women who were against Soraya and kept her. Uh, but and a lot have been killed also when the dictator left very quickly Libya, mm-hmm. uh, not Libya, but his, um, before going to Sirte, etc. But I could go there. I could meet again Soraya. I could spend a month with her, mm. let her speak, and tell my, her story with details every night, which I did. It was a big um, a big choice to do it. Mm. But then I was not, of course, interested just in, in a little story or in, in, in his sexual behavior, which I don't care. But it tells a lot about his regime, about what he did for forty-two years forty-two years. I've read a lot of books about Gaddafi. They never talk about that, you know? This is just what dictators do. Is it not an issue? Yes, it is an issue, because it explains the way he was behaving with women, the fact that he wanted to have a lot of women in school, in university. He was Spending an amount of time incredible amount of time just watching the videos of the villages of weddings etc, just to notice women that you would like etc so, the the new uh, the new bride for instance, and then he sent her husband far away so he could catch etc but people and I discovered that in these countries in these countries um, from the Maghreb, Northern Africa, but but in so many countries, in fact, that rape is such a taboo. When we say taboo in France or in French, it means it's embarrassing to talk about. It's a delicate questions. It's a bit taboo. But taboo in these countries means it's between life and death. It's you can't talk about that. And being raped, it's such a dishonor that it's a dishonor for yourself, of course, but for all the family, for, especially for the men of the family, you know. And that explains the crime of honor that we should, we should uh, call the crimes of dishonor. But it's the fact that it exists so it is very dangerous and once a woman was raped or kept by Gaddafi for one year or just for six nights that makes that spoil totally alive she can't go back to her family or she if she come back of course she will be hidden and beaten punished etc. because that you know that's always the case a woman is is, is, um, is guilty twice, or is twice a, a victim? But she's guilty for being a victim. So it's it's just crazy. And I, I've met I've met a man uh, too, by the way, but who, who tried to explain that they wanted to talk to me, and they were saying, you know, if my if my sister was raped, I would have to kill her that this is something I just can't accept really you know there's a lot of things you can okay there we are so many different of culture but that this is impossible to hear and I've seen and I, I remember well, because I, I when I was in Libya I worked with a woman who tried to help girls who had been raped during the revolutions First, and and we had we had brought to our small hotel, which was hidden because you know I wanted to be very discreet while I was working there. And uh, a young girl who was pregnant came there. She was pregnant because of a rape during the revolution. I should have said that, of course, Gaddafi did that as a weapon to control all the. Families, tribes, his generals. He tried to, to, to rape the wife or the daughters of his generals, of his mistress sometimes, of ambassadors, of her president of big companies because that was a way to control them because they. The girls, the, girl, the women couldn't talk, or the husband couldn't talk. He was feeling dishonored, but he couldn't say that, because if he was saying that to other people, he would be the one who would be criticized, dishonored, etc. So everybody was keeping silence, and he was governing his country also like this. So after that, rape and sex being a, a, a weapon of power, he made a weapon of of war during the revolution, and and order to his militias and soldiers to rape in in different districts, in villages, etc. Well. well uh, that said, uh, yes, I, I wanted to. Well, what was my book? I made. You know, <laughs> the different parentheses. So I forgot what, what I was working. But saying, but um, uh, this little girl, in fact, Soraya, uh, allowed me mm-hmm. uh, to discover uh, a system, and then, mm-hmm. and then, of course, um, explained to me lots of things. That was made during the revolution. I went to prison. I made some rapists, etc., etc. And. And I discovered um, something which was never written before, which still surprised me, even if it's difficult to write about that subject but it something also that was kind of accepted by historians, by journalists by because I think that a lot of people knew they didn't know exactly they hadn't been in the in in the basement where Gaddafi was keeping all his girls and 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 women, etc. They hadn't been there. It was impossible to go there. But they could have known lots of things. Diplomats knew lots of things about what was Gaddafi. But it wasn't an issue. And even I was talking with a, a, a colleague of mine, who is a friend, which I do like very much. And he's a real nice guy. And when I said, about, you know, what Gaddafi was doing this, is unbelievable. And he said, well, you know, Saddam, Saddam Hussein was doing oh, pretty the same. I said, what? And she said, maybe not to that extent, but you know, there were lots of women who, which could find at the, the entrance of villages, and they just have been pushed out uh, after one or two nights, etc. And I said, Michelle, how many how many articles did you write about Iraq? 200, mm-hmm. 250? Mm-hmm. You never wrote about that. It's not an issue. It's not something interesting. It's just women's issue, or just a little detail. You can have just a small story. Isn't that important? And I think this tells us a lot of mm-hmm. things, sometimes about journalism, but also about what people tend to consider as a kind of normal. It is sad, mm-hmm. but it is some, in a way normal. It is acceptable. And I think this is not. And I think we have... (laughs) I'm too... too. (laughs) This is why, Anique,
0: we need you writing these stories so that we actually learn about them. And we know how important that story was because you sold 100,000 copies of your book on Gaddafi's Harem. It's been translated into 20 languages, was it? So it was very much a story that had to be um, told. I'm going to segue now into inviting um, our our co uh, uh, conversationless, less um, Peden and, and um, Liz onto the stage and, and just sort of by way of doing that, one of the things that I wanted to um, say both about your book Adafis Harem, but also about the documentary that we screened today, um, that my colleague Karen Selberg screened as part of the Irish documentary um, series, Le Crie et du the muffled scream. There's, a, there's something similar about both of those pieces and for me the most sinister part of the women telling their stories was not these horrific stories, you know, that that happen of the systematic use of rape. It's the stories they tell about their changing social circumstances. So Soraya tells a story of her parents meeting as Libyans in Paris. Her mother thinks she has this very cosmopolitan life, that she will get married in Libya and go back and live in Paris and then, surprise, no, she finds she's installed in uh, Libya by her husband and is expected to have a traditional life. Soraya, too, is told by her father, you can be a doctor, you can do anything they want to do. The women in Le Cré-Étouffé as well tell these stories about these changing circumstances around them. And I think that that's something that's resonant, you know, beyond beyond these very important stories about these experiences that we can think are so different from anything that we might know, you know, in a sort of European environment. The sense for women in the Anglophone world as well that their rights may not be as secure as they think that they are and that circumstances can change very quickly. I think the popularity of the television show, The Handmaid's Tale, is very much, driven by that sense things can change around you exactly. so I think one of the things that's so important about your stories is these stories but also the sense that we maybe shouldn't take you know the sorts of rights that we expect to have you know here in Australia for instance for granted as well oh, that's that. Sure. that, so that.
1: we we'll see that Every day, mm-hmm. and uh, all these questions about abortion now—the uh, mm-hmm. questions are still raised all over the world, etc. We, we always have the feeling that okay, now we've done with that, and that's mm-hmm. for sure, and for eternity, it's not. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reverse and the black backlash, etc. Yeah. So we. Been, we have to be very careful and to be very sensitive of I think this all this question concerning women and it's not women's issue it's a question of human rights mm-hmm. it's a question it it's it's appealing for everybody for the men of we're not going to change if men are, don't feel concerned mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's a real question of society and this injustice uh, huge injustice and, and lots of inequalities uh, all over the world between men and women have terrible consequences on immigration or of the quality of life or um, child soldiers in some countries etc etc so we should it should be. Um, we have to change our lenses and to, to to always think of that question, especially when we are a journalist, for instance, and when we are a male. I think there's. I've seen so many, and I've read so many books about the war, about the situation, about the earthquake, etc., etc. Good journalism, I thought, and I that I liked, that I admired, until I just realized that in these articles or in these books, they didn't even quote one woman. And some books I've read about uh, the war in Vietnam, for instance, very great journalism. You know, they are very famous. Seymour Hersh, and great journalists. They don't quote a woman. They just live on a, the planet of men. And so they just interview probably generals or fighters. I don't know, but war, uh, writing about war, about situation means that you also you, you you think of the people who suffer from the war. So people who are underground, people, you know, so, so just the whole humanity, just not
0: half of the humanity.
1: So hey, lots of this
2: Peter
0: up <laughs> <and> <laughs> Concerned man, <laughs> who is also a world-famous investigative journalist. This seems a good moment to draw you.
2: I'm actually, I'm finding it quite... <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm intruding because it's such a wonderful <laughs> conversation. I could listen, listen to Anique um, all evening because I guess for me, um, Anique represents one of the, the finest Parts of, of our profession. And, and in fact, I think of what we do as the, the world's second oldest profession. <laughs> um, we're storytellers. Journalists, great journalists, are storytellers. They're people who take common events, the things that are taking place around us, and, and draw, draw out not just the narratives, but draw out meaning from those narratives. And that's clearly something you have an extraordinary talent for. We've been listening to you, oh, you. talk about those and, and bring not just. Narratives to life, but the richness and the meaning behind those narratives. Um, And in a way, the thing that's impressed me about what you've been talking about is something that I've I've also recognised. And I found it. I discovered this in Africa. And and forgive me for making the parallels, but I think in a lot of our coverage of Africa Week, we slip into cliches around race and ethnicity. We talk about racial conflicts as if, well, that's just that explains everything. But it takes extraordinary journalism to really dig beneath those narratives those yeah. those things that, that are so hard in the way that we perceive and understand the world to really get to the bottom of the stories and i struggled and i have to accept i have to admit that i i failed certainly i achieved nothing of the kind of depth and, and extent that Anik did in libya oh. in the work that i was trying to do in 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 congo india Congo, which is oh. widely cited as the rape capital of the world and Trying to understand the reasons behind that was extraordinarily perplexing. Partly because of the challenges of overcoming the taboos around talking about rape and sexual violence, but also because even for those that have suffered, often they go back to the same old tropes, which again doesn't, doesn't really reveal anything fundamental about it. So I guess the question that I really wanted to ask you is: is, is how deep, you know, where does that responsibility lie for? for for getting past those those cliches. You spoke about the narratives. You spoke about the way that journalists in themselves often as make assumptions. That's you, you, when you when you mentioned Gaddafi, you said that journalists said, oh well, that's just how he is, as if that somehow explains things when, as you said, it, it actually explains nothing and, and the deeper questions are actually far more revealing. So is the responsibility ours as journalists to dig beneath those those cliches, or is this a mm. much wider social? This problem. is very complicated.
1: It's hard to talk about our duty, but I feel that choosing our stories tells a lot also about what we think. Of course at the beginning when you arrive in a country, but you've travelled much more than me, so <laughs> please. <laughs> you, you, you said I did a lot, but you did much more. I read uh, some of the things you, you did and I admire so much. Really. Um, and, and you did a lot of different fields. And, uh, but when you arrive in a country, you just take the stories as they present. Themselves. Sometimes you, you, sometimes you have an idea, but sometimes you don't have, and you, so you think this is interesting. They oh, this is new that I didn't know, etc. And you go on and on, and being surprised, and that's a part of our job, and that's a part of our pleasure also to be curious and to be paid to be curious in a way. But, but, but then I think we have, and probably I wouldn't have said that when I was thirty. It comes with the age and with experience also. But before leaving or even arriving in a country now, I I think I I feel more my relationship to discover different things and uh, the responsibility to dig in some areas that I wouldn't have thought before. And one of the areas, it's not the only one, of course, but here we We are here on the coast of women. Um, I would have thought of going straight to women when I was in a, in a country uh, at the beginning when I began to investigate you in, uh, know I don't know in, uh, in in Iran or in Afghanistan or you uh, been in Afghanistan and uh, uh, that was not my purpose you know I was uh, sent the first time I went uh, to Afghanistan I was sent to write a profile of the man of the year the man of the year was Karzai for, for Le Monde so I was pleased to meet him and I met the generals around him and the warlord etc. etc. And I didn't, didn't immediately think of what about the woman? You know, this because the foreign desk who sent me was not expecting that at all. And it's little by little that I realized that why wouldn't I ask him questions about that also? What about his wife? She was she she was supposed to be a gynecologist in Pakistan and now she's hidden in a house beside his fortress. What is what is it about? This is just so I I have to take on my shoulders also to dig this to dig this type of problem. I don't know if I answer well your question, but there's a kind of duty now and a responsibility. I feel very much um, to to systematically raise this type of question and go deep to. Uh, and and think of half of the sky, as Mao would say, half of the humanity. And uh, it's not obvious. And I think, and I've realised now, that for men, first of all, a lot of men didn't even think of that. But it's a fact also that if they were thinking, uh, if they were willing to investigate about the situation of women, which tells a lot of a country and of of a society and of a regime, they wouldn't be allowed to. And it would be very difficult, because they wouldn't have access to the women in Afghanistan, to the women in Pakistan, to the women in Libya. There's no way. This is why it's so... It's a chance also, and uh, to be a woman in yeah. most of the countries, in fact, and to be a woman journalist, because when you, are, you go to Iran, of course, you want to. A couple of times that happened. I went I uh, wanted to shake hand, of course, to the people and the, to the. Ayatollah, who were receiving me or welcoming, not welcoming, but accepting an interview with me. <laughs> <laughs> say that. And you know, they were saying like this, I was just with my hand, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. But never mind, I really don't mind. They answer my questions. I, I they nearly do.
2: got myself shot doing that for a woman. Really? <laughs> I <was kind> of <laughs>
1: oh, you did say <laughs> <do that>. yes. <laughs> yeah, but at least the answer, because you are the international press. Okay, they respect the answer. But I have the possibility to go to the wife, to go to the mm-hmm. sisters, to go to mm-hmm. the mom, etc., and I have access to everybody, yeah. which you don't have sometimes in, in some country. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a fact. So the, the newsroom should be much more open also to women. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think that's true and, and, and one of the things that and when you speak about feminism and you speak about a lot of the stories that you've been covering it seems that at, that at its heart it, it's about what journalism should be doing and that's telling and uncovering unfairness it's about yes. fairness it's not about gender it's not about gender it's not about race but it, it's about fairness <laughs> and we lose sight of that really fundamental thing because we get caught up in so many of the narratives about yes. gender and, and sexual politics. Um, when at it's hard, it's just about fairness. What's, what's fair? Mm. Um, it's not fair that women are, mar- are marginalised and isolated. It's not fair that women mm. are abused and raped. It's and, and, and why that happens are things we I don't think we we, we properly investigate and, and, and think about.
1: Oh, that's great! Uh, I I love you doing <laughs> saying that. Really, you know what? I, I had the chance to to interview um, Jimmy Carter uh, yeah. a couple of years ago. He was in Paris, and you know his last book is more than close to 90 now, mm-hmm. it's very old, and, and uh, bright and still um, strong. And, and his last book is A Call for Action, and it's a cause of women. And he said, you know, I've traveled all over the world. Really, I've been in 180 countries. It's just unbelievable. And he was very much involved in peace conflicts, uh, in peace process, etc., etc., And he said, I've discovered. Very recently, and I'm ashamed of that. That the huge, the biggest injustice in the world is injustice, it, it, it is the inequality between men and women and the huge consequences it has um, on, on the world, on societies, etc. It is unbelievable. And he talks about the femicide, saying that 160 girls are just missing. 160 girls, and and it says you know during last World War II, there was 40 people were killed, but 160 girls are missing now, just being sometimes strangled, but disappearing, killed at birth, because just because they are girls, and people want to have boys, and he's talking about you know mutilation, genetic mutilation, genetic. Um, Genical, genital. genital mutilations. And he talks about rapes, rapes at the university. Of course, nobody wants to talk about that, especially in America. And he says this is just a disaster. And when there's rapes in Famous universities, the ones who are expelled and rejected from the university, are the girls, not the boys who committed, especially if they, if they belong to the football team of the university. And what about in the army? So, so the percentage of rapes in the army is tremendous. Yes, this is so unfair. And etc, etc. And he quotes and saying, well, I should have trust. This question as the worst and the, the the most important inequality and injustice in the world and I, I was so glad that he, he he said that kind of thing and he said this is not like you just it's not women's issue it's just a question of fairness so yes thank you for saying <laughs> that we've been having quite a few conversations
0: is. around those kinds of issues in this country as well and so it might be a good moment to. Broaden the conversation before I broaden it um, to the audience as well and invite you to join the
3: conversation, Liz. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I'd like to just echo Elizabeth and Peter's sentiments around the stories that you've shared from women um, in the places that you've been, their stories of pain and persecution, resilience and resistance, as well as compassion and courage, of yearning, of hope and possibility. And it reminds us, really, of all of the women who've come before us to pave the way, open doorways, yes. break down barriers and to make dreams possible. And I'm thinking about the title of your book, I Wouldn't Be Here Today If, and certainly Gender Studies at UQ wouldn't be here if, for the work of some really remarkable women, which include Mel Thornton and a shout out to Carol Ferrier, who's um, been a woman who's stood strong and steadfast in spite of it all and been a really loud voice in that space. And so I guess to kind of, I know that we're keen to have a QA, and a so to kind of round up the conversation, I guess I'm really interested to hear you respond to, in an un fair world, how important and what would be the most singular lesson we could learn about raising your voice, speaking up and speaking out as a feminist, what would that lesson be?
1: What would that lesson be? What would that lesson be? I'm sorry
0: Liz, you'll
1: have to...
3: So what would be the single most powerful lesson we could learn from your work and Oof. the stories that women have shared with you about speaking up and speaking out as a feminist?
1: Hmm. It's difficult, the most, um, most important issue, but uh, I would say that um, it's important to talk together and not to be afraid of expressing and listening to everybody you know of course in australia there's been a lot of talk about me too movement and uh, there was lots of question in france to whether it's just a little movement or it's a huge wave mm-hmm. and we have the responsibility to make it a, a huge wave mm-hmm. it could have been other mm-hmm. we could have taken other pretext but that's one At least it existed. Something happened. And I think it's changing lots of things in very many countries. Probably not in Afghanistan or probably not in Libya, I'm afraid. Even if women might have heard about that, they can't do much. But we can do. We can do at the university. We can do ourselves. We can talk in the schools. It is so important. We can involve boys. In, 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 in elementary school, it begins at the base. And I think this is a responsibility for everybody. And again, it's not it's not at all a question a woman's issue, a question for women. It's a question for all the world society. And the word feminist, there's so many women still in, in Paris, still in France, who are still Afraid of saying, ah, you know I'm not a feminist, but you know be feminist, be, 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 don't be afraid of saying, this is a beautiful word, and it's an, an, a humanism. it's part of humanism, of course. And as Benoît Gros was saying in France, you know that one of the rare words in ism that hasn't killed. There's no dead with feminism. There's machism kills every day but feminism hasn't killed anybody so let's be proud of that you know let's think of that let's be proud of calling ourselves and and men could call uh, themselves also be proud at school to be called a feminist even if you are 10 uh, 10 years old boy I, I made an interview recently with uh, the minister Prime Minister of uh, uh, justin Christine Trudeau from mm-hmm. Canada and the title of the was uh, uh, I'm proud to be called a feminist and I have two sons and I want them to be to behave as feminists also. So let's be conscious of that, it's not a big lesson I, I'm afraid, I can't, I can't give, but let's make the conversation non-stop about all those subjects as normal subjects mm-hmm. and You know, some people have have read, have seen the 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 film maybe before um, about rapes in in Syria. And there's one woman in that film that say, "Well, I will, I have said, tell you my truth, what happened to me, which is just terrifying. And now, you people have watched, and you are going coming back to your your ordinary life, and you're going to forget us." And, of course, I don't know when, when people ask me oh, what can we do, uh, I don't have the answer, of course, for rapes in Congo, for rapes <laughs> in Syria, etc. what can I do? I don't have lessons. But let's talk, talk. Because once rape uh, is, will not be considered as a, a, a word that um, that dirty, dirty. Met dirty yeah. on you, um, that it's going to be an issue. And it's going to be an issue when they are going to talk about um, uh, in the process uh, for the peace, in the peace process in Geneva. It's going to be an issue at the United Nations. Once it's, it's going to be just considered as something which is happening, that we have stress. It's a torture. We're not afraid to talk about torture. And we're afraid to talk about rape. This is, it's, it's a torture. So let's talk torture. Let's, let's call it torture if you prefer. but. Don't be afraid of using the right words and and talking. Make discussion, and
0: don't be afraid of addressing this subject, which that are seems human rights. To me a beautiful invitation <laughs> to move to, let's talk and discuss these things. So I think we will move to some um, to have some questions and comments from the audience now, and I can see that we have a roving, Mike, so uh, put up your hand nice and high so that we can see it and who would like to kick us off?
3: Thank you both very much for such an inspiring um, presentation. I'm a scientist by trade, so I'm invited by my journalist friend here tonight. So (laughs) this is super exciting for me. Um, I guess, Anik, I'm just going to ask a simple question. You've clearly had such a um, progressive life um, and experiences, what would you, if you could speak to your 15-year-old self back on that kitchen table, what would you say to her?
1: (laughs) 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 Well, it's funny because uh, I had to, I thought of that a couple of days ago, you know, I was in a in Australia I arrived in Australia a week ago and I was thinking first that oh my god if me being 12 <laughs> so even before 15 <laughs> but being 12 could I could see me now in Australia which I dream so much I really would be happy um, I don't know what I would change or if I would saying something maybe i would be more aware now and i like to talk to young people more aware of these subjects of this unfairness that we talked before maybe it was, it was good also that i didn't know and that, that just i discovered things little step by step little by little uh, coming coming to a going to a conflict and going to a, uh, to cover an, es- an earthquake each time was a different experience and i I really like my job because it's it's a way of living and just raising questions and trying to still trying to understand what we are on the earth for. (laughs) That's a big question. But being a journalist you know provokes you and, and brings you lots of questions about existence and why we're there uh, but also it's a way to be close to people each time because my job is to work on this human material that's there's no techniques I have still a computer now but still I take notes etc so it's wonderful maybe for my job um, yeah, I, I I'm, could have maybe uh, be more engaged uh, in, um, in what I think uh, before um, uh, in my thirties, maybe I could have, but you need to take your time probably, and you can't provoke things and you, uh, they need to be, um, they need to come to view, to your mind, so I don't know what I would say but uh, <laughs> Be generous, uh, go to people, um, don't be so shy. I was kind of <laughs> shy, <laughs> uh, not sure of myself at all. But, but still, I, I, I like people. So I was, um, and I, I never, on the contrary of a lot of women I, that I interviewed, I, I never faced tough things or huge difficulties. I've been quite lucky. So I would change very many things, because I've
2: been lucky. Thank you for questions. As a former journalist, I once encountered a situation where I interviewed a refugee who told me their story and they'd been tortured and things before coming over to Australia from a refugee camp. When people sometimes share their stories about rape and things, they re-traumatise themselves in telling you that. Mm but sometimes to your editors and people don't want to know, as was the case for me, how do you take care of yourselves and the expectations of your, the people you interview in gathering the story and doing the interview, but I guess not disappointing the person and also, also yourself, I suppose, because there's a human toll with that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's probably as much a statement as a question.
1: <laughs> no, thank you. Comment je ressens les choses et comment faire attention à moi? Yeah. Attention à toi and attention à... Well, um, yeah, some stories are are hard to to cover and, uh, and um, going, um, receiving all these uh, I shouldn't say confessions. This is not the right word. But all those words of, of women could be could be very painful sometimes. But most of the time, except for television, television is quite another experience, and that was wild, I think, and that was really tough. And when you are face to face, when I have just my small notebook and there's a translator close to me, and we we talk. Well, and I can take the, the my neighbor's hand from time to time, <laughs> et cetera, and it helps. And so it's it goes little by little. And I think at least I create a relationship that is less painful for the person, for the woman who talk to me, and even for me. There's a link that we create, which makes that I hope she's not too broken, too much broken when she leaves me, and at the same time, I feel just responsible to tell her story and to be good enough to, to present her story. And so I was never devastated. I was shocked, but not devastated. But because, yeah, I'm going to say something personal because um, I was, for so many years, I've been, um, I was well in my. On my foot, you know, and uh, I lost my job, and i i I knew why I was doing that job, etc, and I was feeling kind of strong and as I say in the introduction of my last book, I, I suddenly lost my parents, another uh, little girl now <laughs> more than fifty, so you know it should I should be now an adult, etc. But that was such a shock, certainly the, the brutality of the death of my mother that just died. She was a, didn't think she was sick. And, and so she died when I was on a report on Burma. And uh, when I come back, she just uh, sent a text to me, oh, darling, I think you come back in three days. And when I came back, she was dead. And it just happened like that. And I was so shocked. So shocked! I couldn't believe that, and that was strange because I've seen so many deaths, and I, I, I've written about torture, and I've been in wars, and etc. I've met um, <laughs> deaths before, but that didn't concern me so much, and I thought that I was very moved and 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 um, and touched by all what I saw. But suddenly, it was a test close to me, a collusion with tests test that I was not expected, um, how violent it was. And then I went to investigate about rapes in, uh, I think that was in, uh, in, in Iraq, rapes in Iraq. And I met lots of Yazidi people and it was terrible to report. And, uh, and for the first time, coming back from the camp of refugees, and they had told me terrible stories, and I was crying in the in the car. And that was the first time in my life. And suddenly I was feeling weaker. And wow, that touched me totally. What they had told me, and I didn't know whether I was crying for them, crying for me. It it reminds me things. It it goes to your heart deeply, and uh, all things are mixed. And uh, Wow, and I'm wondering now if I will be as strong as I used to be for so many years. Than now, so yes, of course we are touched by things, by what they say. My, but, but. But my concern was so much to protect the people who tell me things and to protect them afterwards. So not to give them their names. Uh, these women who accepted to, to give the testimony for the film, we protected them afterwards. We changed their their houses when um, we made them move from one house, house to another or from one village to another when the film was screened, etc., etc. This is an obsession to protect my sources, that for sure. But myself, a journalist, we, we take a lot of things. And uh, it's better to be well-fitted in, in your personal life. And if there's something which is a bit uh, difficult, it makes things harder, I mean, for sure. We
0: have one more question behind here.
2: Thank you, Anika. I was interested in what
0: you recalled of going to your foreign desk editor asking permission to go in Libya to cover that subject. And the response was quite despondent. You know, yeah, it's a tiny subject, you can go and do it. Do you think the culture in the newsroom is changing? Is it easier for you and your colleagues to go and actually argue for this kind of subject to to be covered? Yes,
1: it has changed. Absolutely. And I think the Me Too movement has done a lot again for that. And as soon as it arrived, it happened. Um, Le Monde, for instance, organized a, a, a staff, a task force. It was called like that, a task force in English, um, <laughs> really. And there were some women from the uh, from the newsroom who were unified uh, to to address this type of subjects. Uh, and it was um, it was official. And they had to write. They had time, and they had uh, some uh, money, and to and especially time, which is the most precious thing in journalism, time, and to investigate all those subjects. Okay, me to move. Movement, harassment aggression etc where in medicine in the medical uh, hospitals let's face that and let's investigate the movie industry oh, they, they, don't, they don't like us to investigate very much and the actors are, in France are still afraid of talking too much and being verbal on that question but what happened in, in hospital we discovered lots of things lots of sexism lots of harassments. In the, in, the, in, in the surgery rooms sometimes, and in the universities of medicine, which is just unbelievable. And uh, we, we did that in very many different fields, uh, in trade unions. Wow, you know the trade unions. We are on, we're on the left and very progressive, supposedly progressive. Well, one of the leader was a hustler, you know, man who really harassed a lot of women, etc., etc. In political parties and all this type of investigation wouldn't have never been made, um, or maybe by chance if there was a, a female journalist who really wanted to do it, but it was not at all encouraged. And even once, and I, I like my newspaper really I have lots of freedom but still I've been told once that uh, well and I had written two two long stories in a year about women two only two and one of um, Ned uh, editor-in-chief who is really nice told to me I should stop writing about women mm-hmm. and it was two in a year you know <laughs> so, so, I, this is too much, and and I know he was telling that for, for my good, you, you know, for my reputation in a way, and, and the other way, another time when I did a, um, a long sorry, that was a long inquiry about rapes in Syria, because that was very tough and, well, so I was happy having done that. It was a big work. And it was published. And I, I remember receiving some letters. And the, there was one from someone I was watching on TV when I was a kid, you know, when I was 15 years old on TV. And this Chinese was very, very well known. And he sent me a beautiful letter. I, I couldn't, you know, I recognized his signature, Dominique Pomberger, not to tell his name. And uh, he said, Wow, well, what a good job! And eagle! Oh, wow, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you know, as a 15 years old, I would have been so proud this guy. (laughs) Write to me. But, but, at the end, he added a little sentence, and he said, P.S., and it was just wonderful until that, but P.S., post-Christum, please, don't become a specialist of rape. And, And he was doing that for my good, you know, for my reputation, you know, don't become a specialist of because I wouldn't be such a good journalist or it's it's gonna be spoiled by that mm. you know it's good what you did but, but oh. and that tells a lot yes. about how hard it was to to face this kind of subject and to publish them etc and how our editor-in-chief even if they are good journalists were always reluctant to put that front page etc as if it was something dirty it's not it's just huge issue and that concerns everybody so But yes, you see. But it's going, it's better now, really. Things are a lot easier. Uh, I've been a lot easier for one year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Now,
0: David, I think you're going to be the lucky last question. We're almost out of time, I have to preface by
2: saying that. Thank you. And that's a good lead in to my question in some (laughs) ways. And going, going back to the book of interviews with women. Uh, Probably most of the discussion was in a way around the the positive aspects of those stories. But I was interested in the way the women might have spoken about some of the barriers or obstacles, disappointments, betrayals and so on in in their careers and in particular whether there were common experiences or patterns in the way that they spoke about some of those negative aspects?
1: Some, probably there are some schemas, but um, each story is so different. You know, you could, uh, women being from the same generations probably faced the um, same patterns. The same patterns, yes, probably. It, it's, it goes with generation, with age, probably, that you could find some similarities, probably. Uh, if not, I was, uh, I was fascinated to see that, well, it, it's banal in a way, but uh, each one had her own story. And uh, um, for Francoise Héritier, for instance, she's an um, ethnologue. And she, she worked uh, with um, Levi Strauss, who was very, very important. And she doesn't cr- criticize him, because he was her mentor. But still, when she wanted to go to Africa, being a young doctor, and being, I don't know, 25 or 26, she was refused, because yes, it, it, they had advertised uh, the post, uh, in Africa, but O uh, Volta at that time, uh, uh, which is Burkina Faso, and they had said that the post, which is vacant, and the uh, doctor should be uh, could address uh, its candidacy, etc. And uh, she was denied the possibility of living because she was a woman. So she didn't say much. She didn't. She didn't say I was attacked or she hasn't been there. I think she had a quite a happy life, but still. It was there was a um, an obstacles made at the beginning of a career, but and, and and for everybody you could see at a certain time there was there was an obstacle there was a barrier which was made to all the careers of women in all the, uh, the different jobs. Uh, it was always something that they were not expected to do, especially the oldest one, I guess. For the youngest things are moving little by little. So I can't say if there, is a, there are some patterns. Um, a lot of people reading the books have been surprised to see that maybe a third of the women uh, faced uh, sexual aggressions, mm. um, rapes, or incest. Uh, which was the case for Agnès B., the mm-hmm. stillist, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable. She talks about that very uh, quietly, but still, she was 12, 13. Amélie Nothomb, who is a great writer, so popular, mm-hmm. she made a little mention of that in the book and never talked. About it again, but still a lot of people ask her a question about why is she so complicated with food and anorexia, but they don 't ask why Do you, does she has any idea why she become anorexic and it 's a fact that that happened after a sexual aggression when she was twelve, and virginie depart when she was sixteen rape and, and so i didn't choose them for that, but it 's a fact that a lot of course Evan slayer. Yeah. Um, that makes a big proportion and people were shocked and said, did you choose them for that, you know, there's so many people I didn't and probably it tells a lot just about society at least these women succeeded and so feel now a kind of responsibility or honesty to tell the truth Mm -hmm. because they don't risk something anymore but that there's a lot about the silence of so many other women who don't
0: and I think talk the other thing that really comes out in your book, Anique, is so many of the women that you talk to are very engaged in feminist issues. And so that's one of the other you know, common denominators that I found was that, that engagement to do something um, positive. And yeah. in the interest of solidarity with you, Anik, who we have been working very hard this evening, I have the sign now that we will give you a rest from speaking in <laughs> English no less for what is now pushing on for two hours. So so please everyone join me now in thanking our wonderful speaker tonight, Anik Gauchon. <laughs>